is the errors that get deep down in your code base that are the toughest to wash out. How? Use new fashion smashing with exclusive learning action. Bugs just float away with smashing. So help your family's code stay spotless with easy to use smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about the process of design. How do you build a process to enable your best work? Vidley talks to designer Mei Shong to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In Building and Dockerizing a Node.js App with Stateless Architecture with help from Kinsta, Tejas Kumar takes a swing at creating a stateless Node.js app and dockerizing it, making the development environment clean and efficient. Along the way, he explores the benefits of hosting containers on platforms like Kinsta that offer a managed hosting environment or supporting Docker containers as well as application and database hosting. Sarah Okeakolo looks at exploring the potential of web workers for multi-threading on the web. Multi-threading is an important technique used in modern software development to enhance the performance and responsiveness of applications. In this article, Sarah explores the importance of web workers for multi-threading, including the limitations and considerations of using them and the strategies for mitigating potential issues associated with them. In the potentially dangerous non-accessibility of cookie notices, Marcus Herman notes that cookie consents, whatever your opinion is regarding them, are ubiquitous and possibly even a legal risk for your web page. In addition to their privacy implications, they have the potential to violate web accessibility laws as well. In this article, Marcus shares some cookie banner error patterns that massively hurt a page's overall conformance. Our very own Vitaly Friedman presents us with an accessible target sizes cheat sheet. These are practical guidelines to help prevent rage taps and rage clicks with accessible tap targets for icons, links, and buttons on desktop and on mobile. Oh, yeah! And in Write Better CSS by Borrowing Ideas from JavaScript Functions, Yafi Berhanu notes that many problems with website layouts, such as unwanted side effects, painful updates, and brittle code, happen when we don't write CSS with the same care we'd use when writing a JavaScript function. Yafi looks at how we can borrow best practices and ideas from writing good JavaScript functions for writing CSS. That is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. She's a senior UX designer and a UX consultant with a strong product and strategy background. As a kid, she was busy creating arts and fell in love with UX while studying industrial design in college. She has spent her career developing design systems and solving problems for e-commerce products that are loved by millions of people around the world. Now, she also loves helping designers uncover root causes, explore multiple directions, and identify sweet spots between user and business. She's currently working with Booking.com and resides in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Of course, she is a cat person, as it often is in the Smashing podcast. And in her spare time, she can be found painting, skiing, serving her cats, the right couple, 
writing on her design blog, and learning about design, business, leadership, and management. So, we know she's a wonderful UX designer, but did you know that she used to swim in order to participate in the Olympics? That was one of her dreams, which unfortunately didn't come true. However, help her have a lung capacity of over 5,000, which is a big deal. My smashing friends, please welcome Mei Shan. Hello, Mei. How are you feeling today? Hello. Hi, everyone. I'm smashing. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. How are you? Is it cold out there in, in Amsterdam these days? So is yeah. it sunny? Luckily, it was sunny in the couple of days, in the past couple of days. Yeah. Okay. So it's better. I have to ask the story. So like swimming in the Olympics, why did you decide to do this? Because I mean, you were, I guess you were playing with design and UX already at this point, or was it before or prior to design? Oh. Why did you decide to take on this challenge? It was definitely before the design career. So I was in my elementary school and I fall in love with swimming and as an ambitious little girl who want to have some targets. So I was like, okay, I need to compete for the Olympics because this is something very challenging. But unfortunately, I could, I didn't go through the competition, but I think it definitely gave me something, make me a stronger person, not only physically, but also mentally. So I really oh, appreciate I have, that. I have no doubt at all. I'm, we'll probably bring up, I'll probably bring up this question about how it in the end influenced your UX and design career. But maybe before we dive into that, maybe you could ch- share a little bit of a story about how did you even end up in this design and UX world? Uh, so maybe you could share a bit about your journey and what brought you where you are today? Uh, yeah, I think what brought me as where I am today is the iPhone 4. <laughs> so I got I- iPhone 4 as a gift as a first year of my college. And then I get to learn about human computer interaction with pub- published by Apple. And another fun fa- fact, so the human computer interaction guidelines are already there in 1987. That is what I remember. Oh, it's a long history of something that I have never heard about. So I start studying basically UX design by myself. I just genuinely really interested in uh, the fancy interactions at that time, you know, what CSS can do for you. I was also a Smashing Magazine fan. Like I follow all your articles and try to do something with CSS and JavaScript. And in I think also during my study, people start discussing about like what you want as a career after graduation, like what industry you would like to join. So I was also lost at the time, but I know I love UX design and I'm good at it because all my school project was related somehow to human-computer interaction. And I think at that time, the IT industry also was booming because people started having Facebook. I think that's somehow made me feel like, okay, maybe that is something that has a future. So that is like basically my journey into UX design. But then you ended up where you are here today and you have all this... I always reminded of all these UX methodologies and methods and all the ways, and you have created these incredible mind maps as well, about all the things that you potentially need to keep in mind as a UX designer when you're working on a product or on a project. And maybe before we dive there, maybe we could speak a bit more particularly about breaking complexity into something that's more manageable. So I know that you, you've been working or you are working on relatively or quite complex products. And again, just given this huge amount of all the different methods and options available to you as a UX designer, how do you choose your path? 
or specifically maybe how do you start when you have a really complex, maybe an enterprise product, or maybe B2B, or maybe anything that's complicated and you need to break it down. How do you do that? What would be your process and maybe also your methods to make sense of it all? Oh, yeah, such a great question. I would guess the first step is always find what is the real problem, right? So what we are designing for, to deep dive into the problems and find the root cause. That is definitely the first step I would choose because the problems also help the designers or people around you to define the process. Because with different problems, you might need different methodologies. And also the second step will also be identifying the stakeholders. As you mentioned, you have people around you who are genuinely interested or who are in, in charge of the project. Identify the people around you and what they need from. So the outcome is not only the end product that deliver to the users, but also uh, to, let's say it in the simple way, make your stakeholders happy. So I think those are the two basic principles for navigating through what methodologies that I pick. And also you need to look at availabilities as well. That is usually happens in the real life work. Maybe, for example, you don't have data for some project, but also it's, import, it's impossible to collect that. So maybe you need to find another method that could answer the same questions that is available. But then I'm also wondering, so you also mentioned data, mm -hmm. right? I'm actually quite wondering because I feel like very often I end up in this dilemma with teams I'm working with where there is a person or there is a team, they have a very strong design vision. This is how it should be. It's, it's usually based on research and it's usually going to be very much focused on user needs or customer needs, very customer-centric view. But then sometimes it clashes against the business idea of how things should be and the business direction of where the company wants to go. And... Sometimes I feel that there is this really strong tension between where the designer wants to go and what they, let's say, A-B testing tells. And A-B testing is such a short-term kind of thing where you test if it works now and then it might be a good thing, of course, to improve things and that will drive conversion and all. But where do you see, how do you see this kind of resolving? So how do you get to this balance between doing something because, again, we run A-B tests and this performs better than this against the big design, the grandiose, so to say, design vision that exists in designers' heads, basically, about based on user needs and based on needs. Yeah. First of all, I don't think those two, like A-B test, let's say A-B testing and a great vision in the, in the in designer's head is something that cannot exist together. I think they can coexist because A-B testing is just one of the methodologies to validate the concept, right? It's just small steps to take you towards a big vision. So it's not an easy task, but it's the designers who need to guide the product managers or get your team towards a vision. So that is actually sometimes underestimated by the outside because we have a lot of things on our shoulders. Designer, because we are visionaries, we have a vision, so we need to take that through. So what I usually do is first, definitely have a great relationship with your product managers because you are actually working together as a whole to reach the vision. So they are more business, of course, and they are more data driven or metrics driven. But on the, hand, on the other hand, you are the use, a user advocate. So, you know, build a good relationship and trust with your product managers and work together on a daily basis. So it shouldn't be like, oh, I don't agree with you or something like this, but more be like, okay, let's sit together and make a great thing. I'll make a great product. And I think 
some sometimes I also feel like uh, it's really important to have a business mindset as a designer, especially if you are working for a non, uh, uh, say, prof- like uh, organization that's aim for profit. Your responsibility is also to keep the business running. The business goal is also your goal as a designer as well. So your responsibility is to craft a great user experience that will improve the business or make the business stronger. So, for example, learn about business metrics, understand the view from the product side. And also, sometimes I find what is helpful for me is to define user behavior metrics uh, because mm-hmm. we're A-B testing. So sometimes you see that maybe some business metrics doesn't increase but the user uh, behavior metrics were improving. So you can also use this as an argument to get things through. So it's not only about A-B testing has to be improving business, but if you can prove that it's going to improve the user experience and the user pe- experience can lead into long-term business growth, then that will happen. Uh, and also, I think what I'm doing very often in the past is also to break the vision into smaller pieces that is experimentable. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's also help us as a designer to to validate your ideas, right? I know we are all, as a designer, we're all proud of our ideas and we believe that's going to work. And most of the time, yeah, of course, it's going to work. But we also need to use data and argument to support our ideas. So I would say it is something, it definitely brings a lot of positive side from A-B testing to build a vision. The reason why I brought this up, actually, the... Because I was, I'm just coming from a project where this has become a big issue, where essentially it seems like there is this very strong tension between, again, the ideas of, okay, we need to do something now and drive conversion up now. But again, we also need to think about the long-term goals. And very often what happens is you might be improving things by showing a newsletter pop-up very prominently and then a bit more prominently and then a bit more flashy and then even more flashy, but then it's actually going to hurt your long-term goals. So I actually want to maybe dig a little bit deeper when you speak about user behavior metrics or any ways of kind of to to capture the quality of the design work basically done. Could you maybe share a few of them that would be most important in your work? I'm thinking about something related to the example you just gave about the flashing pop-up. So one example I can think of right now is that, yeah, in the past I also had experience where the product was pushing for metrics so they are making things rainbowy or flashy i think definitely what helped was to conduct user interviews to kind of you know understand what is your user's point of view of that they'll be like oh i think this brand was just to trick me to under they also understand the black ux partner or the bad sorry the bad ux pattern that tried to trick them into something and also something helped me as well is to look into the long-term user flow because the product, they tend to only focus on one metrics and improve that. But have you look through the whole flow, maybe the click rate went up, but in the end, less people are converting. Then you cannot say that this is a good solution. You just, so you try to find different metrics that can come to build your argument with the product. And also try to, in your daily basis, try to make your product manager or your product colleagues to more understand what is a good user experience. Because I work with all kinds of product managers and some are, like you mentioned in that case, really focusing on one metrics and don't care the UI. And there are also product managers who really understand what is user experience and want to do something good for the long run. So try to also influence your product managers to to understand what is the 
good for the long run because in the end, someone has to clean up the bad UX in the end because that will lead into Absolutely. something in the future. Yeah. I think it also heavily depends on the culture that the company yeah. has, the organization has, and how the teams are organized. And sometimes you see that there are, like, whenever everything is silos, you will end up in the situation where a silo would have a very specific goals and they don't even know what the other teams are doing or how their things that they may be performing on, they're working on in their vertical affect everyone else. So this is more like a probably a slightly broader question in there as well. Maybe you could also share a bit of insight about some of the really complex challenges that you are facing at this moment and something that you're working on that I would say keep you awake at night. Hopefully not, but maybe there are some things just to get a sense about or what you're working on as well at the moment. Yep. So I couldn't share details of product strategy related insight because sure. of the NDA stuff with my current employer. But I will say, yeah, the current challenge definitely about how to level up your people skills and communications as designer through your career. Because I'm running a very big project right now. So basically more than 30 stakeholders on the plate. So I really need to learn connecting people, how I can connect the people. First, by establishing yourself with your activities in your field and also to connect people and find the right person for the right question. And also at this point, you need to try to work through other people. How, I don't know how to put it in the, in the beautiful way, but more enable others to contribute to the project. So in this sense, you need to really artic articulate the project and the impact of this project so you can onboard people and to create a win-win situation where they can learn something from the project or they can do product improvement in their services project as well. So do you would like to be onboarded and work with you? Uh, I think that was about communication, connecting the people. But the most challenging part is leading the whole project. So you need to be super organized, which I was not that great before. So you need to have a roadmap of this project and keep updating this every day. So you can visualize what is going on, what are the updates, and also identify the key stakeholder for each phase of the project, of the activities, and how to communicate with them. And you need to visualize them, document them to help you organize the whole project. I guess that, 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 that was the most challenging part for me right now. That doesn't sound like a lot of moving pixels around in Figma. Though. Which I actually missed that part as well. I'm not sure if this is a common case, but I guess so. When you are running a big project, we're also where we are not in the face of creating new ideas and Figma files. It's more like communicating, documenting, pitching or about the project. I mean, I mean, this is just a normal state of things, I guess. Over yeah. the time, I guess I become this person who would move away from, well, Sketch at the time and Figma to spreadsheets. I don't know, much of my life these days <laughs> is basically organizing things and, and also documents in Dropbox paper, Google Doc, which is organizing things in a way that's available, accessible to everyone else. It also goes, for example, for organizing meetings. I mean, I actually decided to take a very kind of design approach to design the best meetings experience. And this is really difficult, I think. Like in general, processes which involve people are hard, of course. I'm also just curious about your take on the process, because I know that you, meetings including, for example, because I know that you often say that this you need to design your design process. Yeah. And this is very much place, it's like a melody, beautiful melody to my ears, because this is what I've been doing 
Oh, to some degree, I guess, for the last couple of years. I'm wondering, though, how do you mean that? So when we're designing the process, we need to figure out the right way of working for us, for the team as well. How do we design meetings? How do we do we do stand-ups? Do we do written stand-ups? Do we, how, when do we do retros? How often do we do, you know, this and that? Maybe you could share a few things that tend to work better for you, that you learned working well, and something that you would definitely advise as a consultant as well. Companies do really stay away from when it comes to design process. I can quickly tell what the what companies should stay away for in terms of a design process sure. is to for the sake of having a design process to have a design process, regardless of what problem you are trying to solve. Uh, I still remember in my career, there was a company who really want to have a persona. I'm like, okay, why we are going to create the personas? They were like, oh, because everyone is having a persona for this project. And it's our key important deliverable for understanding our customers. So we need this persona. So I'm like, okay, but do you have any? So I'm trying to explain like persona is more like you need to conduct interviews, you need to gather data, and then you come up with someone that represents the key problems or key pain point of your customers. It's not like you just create a persona out of a workshop with some people, internal colleagues of your company. So they're like, oh, okay, then we need to gather data or we need to have a lot of insight of the persona, but we couldn't because they don't have infrastructure to track user behavior. So I'm like, okay, no worries. Just interview eight, eight customers. It's a good number. And try to find what are the common pain points or what's a common desire or need they have. And then you have a persona. So that is something I learned through my career. Oh, you shouldn't just say, oh, this thing looks fancy, the personas or something else. Oh, customer journey map, we need that. It's more, okay, what you are trying to understand and what you have. And based on those two, uh, two aspects, to try to find a methodology that really serve your needs or can help you move in the f- move forward. Yeah, so this is definitely not advice for people or company. I think what I definitely enjoyed is to design. Yeah, as you mentioned, design your own design process. Because as like when I was in when I was studying UX design, right? We have this design thinking process, and everyone try to follow. Okay, define a problem and try to understand and create something iterate. I was also one of them trying like really into that. But then while I started working, I found this is not always the case, right? You need to uh, find what is the most important phase of the project. So for example, if you are tackling a very complex problem and you don't even understand what exact problem it is, then you need to spend a lot of effort in defining the problem phase. Or if it is a project really focused on deliverables, like we need to shape a marketing video or we need to shape the design within two weeks, then maybe you need to spend more energy in the executing phase of the design. So while you're working, it's very hard to have everything to com- to have a very complete design process where you have a solid deliver- deliverables for every phases, but you need to figure mm-hmm. out which phase is the most important based on the needs and the problem and try to shift your energy there. But it doesn't mean that you should skip some process. You can still have them, but it's more trying to say what you ha- already have and not create a new words on, on there. So I think that's what I learned from design your own design process. 
that, that's fine. That's fine. You also, I mean, I always keep coming back to this. Yeah. I don't even know why, but I always feel that many of the colleagues I'm speaking to, they're always just don't even know how to navigate that space of UX methods and models and process. And sometimes it feels like there is this huge amount of all these different things that very different companies are doing and they kind of inventing for themselves or using some of their other established already established methods. Luckily, unfortunately for all of us, you have created two mind maps, which I found really useful to be able to navigate the space in a bit more predictable way. Maybe you could tell a bit more about this and how it helps you in your work. Yeah, a very good question. So at the beginning, I was just writing them down for myself. It's more like library where you know what is available there and you can grab them as a building block to, to build up your design, your own design process. But it's not like something can map out the how of those design process and those methodologies and what it can bring. So uh, that what I'm trying to say is that to be flexible about your design process, to not just see the articles and, okay, I need this and this in exploration phase. But maybe you don't need it based on your problem or your what you are trying to design. So try to be flexible. And also, I would say, sometimes it's more of... Yeah, it's more like the experience you get. So when you are first time, for example, if you are conducting a user interview at first time, or maybe you are doing a survey first time, it's more like you start learning how this methodology works and how you can improve based on the methodology, right? But then as you try multiple methodologies um, in your career, you can reflect on, okay, what this can help and what do I need to conduct this methodology? And then if you keep reflecting on them, it will help you in the future to decide, okay, do I need this methodology in my design process? Will this fit the timeline? Will this fit the requirements? Will this be the best methodology to answer the business questions? Then you start reflecting and, okay, then you can say, okay, then I don't need this. Oh, I really need this methodology. So it's more if you haven't had a lot of experience, try to try them out, even if you are not working or you're just doing an internship, but try things out to understand how this, how them, how them, those methodology work. And then later on, you can, you get the next experience, then you can decide when to use what. So that would be my take. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because I think that to many of us, it's, I don't know, uh, many companies have the process, like this is the process that they're following. So it doesn't matter what department, doesn't matter what the designers are working on, there is the process. This is how we work here kind of thing. And what I'm hearing from you is that basically you you might need to be adaptive there. So if you are say, switching from one design team that you're working with on another team that maybe have different experience, maybe have different preferences, maybe, maybe most of them are working remote, maybe most of them are hybrids right, in one way or the other. So adjusting the methodology and the process based on the team that you have. The only thing that's required there to get it right and to do it well is to know and be comfortable with the different techniques and different methods that are out there. Does that make sense? Is it is that pretty much what you do? Yes, yeah, thanks. Yeah, definitely. That is a very great summary of what Jed, okay. I just said. Yeah. But I think it's also very interesting because it can be quite challenging. I mean, do you find yourself sometimes maybe stuck because you have a particular way of approaching a particular problem with the design team, but then you might have very different levels of experience on the team. 
you might feel like, okay, we need to do something because we might not be able to get things done in time or we're not moving along fast enough and I need to switch gears and move something to another method or I mean, the, the, the reason why I'm asking and what I'm asking here is that not only do you need to be able to switch and be adaptive moving from one team to another in your process, but also as the process is in place, do you feel like sometimes you need to shift gears and change things and plug in something else because it's what you have is not working? Yeah, definitely. I think a very great question. This is a daily life of designer, I guess. The sad life of a designer, isn't it? Yeah, the sad, like we have a dreamed design process defined before project or before we start working on something and maybe one month later something changed, then you need to be flexible and adapt to it. We decided to collect user data because the PM was super into quantitative data and we need that. But our source was not available at the time, so we need to really think about, okay, what can we do? Because we are not going to run the survey anymore. As a design team, or oh, what I did, I think is a really good step. It's like I was also not super experienced at the time, so I'm kind of the newbie in the company. So I bring this to the design team. So I never feel shy that, okay, I should... If I couldn't solve it myself, I should consult with other colleagues. So then we start doing some root, like root analysis. Why we need this survey, right? Because we want to discover problems. We, we don't have a clear problem. We want to discover the problem. Okay, then we do something to also discover the problems without a researcher that can help us send a survey. Then we said, okay, maybe we can do a diary study, right? With usertesting.com. We can set this up together. So we did, in the end, a, a diary study. So those two methodologies actually serve the same purpose in the end. So I guess, yeah, you need to shift when you could think, maybe try to have another methodology that can give you the same insight, or maybe also sometimes just trust your gut feelings, right? Sure. If you if some data is not available, you can validate them later. That's yeah. right. But May, I have to ask a very provoking question at this point, and I'm sure that some of the listeners listening here will be, what... What is this? What is he asking? I do have to ask, do you think that chaos could also be a process? The reason, yeah. Yeah, the reason why I'm asking is, if you have a relatively small team, imagine you have maybe two free designers, you do not have this, I mean, surely we need to have research, we need to use some methods to make things work. Sometimes you see companies trying to over-organize things. If you have a team of two or three, do you need like daily stand-ups? Doesn't seem necessary because people are there in the room talking all the time anyway. It's not like you have this yeah. big organization where you have five departments all doing different pieces and all that. So sometimes I see companies feeling very comfortable in being extremely unorganized, like being chaotic, not even having proper documentation and nothing. It's just Obviously, the problem is that you actually end up with people, the, the knowledge being stuck with these people. If somebody leaves, that's obviously an issue. Onboarding is a problem. But they feel like you can be very productive and very successful without having a proper process and pretty much a chaotic environment. To be honest, I have to say that I agree with you. Oh. So I think be, no, to, to not have a well-established progress of being chaotic, maybe the norm for designers. Because we are creative beings, sometimes you get ideas or you discover something just just randomly while understanding your customers' users. But I would say totally agree with you. If you have a small team and you are working very closely on a daily basis, you might not need to follow like 
a design process like super strictly. It's more like, okay, we are in the understanding phase. Then what can we do? And we discuss together. So it's more like you just need a rough framework to guide you through. And the iteration will also be very fast paced, right? You don't need to, okay, go through everything and iterate again. Totally agree with another point. I feel like the design process is sometimes also more for the non-designers. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, your product stakeholders in the organization or people who are not in your project or another designer who don't have any background knowledge. It's more like for them to help to kind of organize your thought process or justify your own deliverables or your ideas that work to have it to communicate to the outside. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that is yeah, that is what I have to say. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, as we're wrapping up here, I do have to ask you, of course, but this is a question that I'm asking everyone. And I'm really curious about your answer as well. Do you have a particular dream project, like a really complicated challenge, like a really complicated UX, I don't know, monolithic challenge that is probably so hard that it's pretty almost impossible to think about it? Just to give you an idea, some of my colleagues, when trying to answer this question, they start thinking about, oh, I would love to design some sort of, I don't know, like a deck or, um, I don't know, a sort of a control center for rocket science center or anything like that. Some other would say, I just want to be able to work with, you know, United Nations, right? So it goes really different ways. So I'm just curious, do you have a particular dream project or dream task maybe, or dream challenge that you would love to tackle one day? Yeah, I will say, I will go for the second direction. I really want to work for for the sustainability topic or some project for NGOs. Because I have been spending, you know, my career working for e-commerce company, I really want to, you know, contribute to some non-profitable organizations that, you know, for example, sustainability or a turtle saving organization. I really, I think what I can help them is, you know, my experience in e-commerce, you know, to convert people. So maybe we can, I can convert more people doing the good stuff, right? So that would be something I definitely love to work on in the future. Maybe just totally ruining the arc, the story arc of the podcast. I do have to hook on to the thing that you mentioned about e-commerce because I'm just really curious. I spent quite a bit of time around e-commerce as well. Maybe you could share a few stories about things that you learned by working in e-commerce, think that's you know, how customers think or some important things to keep in mind when it comes to e-commerce UX in general. I think what I have learned is your customers are smarter than yourself. <laughs> that is what I have learned. So sometimes you try to, you know, trick them. Sorry. Another dark part of UX I'm talking about. Like you think you can, you know, convert them somehow, but actually they are like, they know, right? They know what you are doing. Like it's not the customers 10 years ago on the e-commerce platform compared to right now. They are very price sensitive. They compare with multiple, you know, competitors, they compare and they make the right decision for them. So, and that is also related to what we talked in the beginning of the podcast, right? You have to focus on the long run to create a great experience for the long run, to bring them benefit in the long run, because they understand everything. And you cannot, if you got them converted once, you might not get them converted the second time and they might leave you if they have really bad experience. So I think right now the e-commerce world is really competitive, but also that is ben- that is good for the customers because they have multiple choices and then they have learned everything. So yeah, 
So I think that is what I have learned from the e-commerce experience. The customers, they also grow as you grow. <laughs> so we've been learning about UX and design today. But if there is one thing that I do have to ask me, because I know that May is very much interested in the something that maybe bothers or excites or inspires all of us, who knows? I know that you've been playing with ChatGPT and AI in general, May. So do you see... I don't know. Do you see this wonderful tool, AI, as an opponent to us, something that we need to fight or something that we're going to embed in our daily workflow and just make the best use of it? How do you use AI today? Yeah, very good questions. I think, yeah, we should, you know, say AI as our friends. You know, we're holding like hands together and help us. Are the best friends? Like good, or friend. g- good friends. Good well, friends. Good friends for now. Okay. Before they replace our job, which will happen, I guess. So recently, I started using ChatGPT to write some, write documentations or write presentations for me. It's, I mean, it's still you need to write down get the key point, and then ChatGPT will help you generate a good sentence. So it saves your time as a designer. You know, you could spend more time in Figma or creating new ideas or creating something or dreaming vision for your company for the coming three years. So, yeah, I think definitely AI saves our time uh, and make sure we can concentrate on works that requires more creativity. Yeah. Right. But I do have to ask a follow-up question. Do you think, May, that AI is creative? I think to some extent. Like, they are creative based on, like, basically data, right? Mm-hmm. And stuff that already exists or they could find in the internet on the internet. But they might not be able to dream further, right? Maybe predict human in 10 years. But I'm not sure. I'm not an expert in AI. I would say they are creative to some extent, but it's also up to us to think about, do we want them to be creative or not? Yeah, that's a good question. So maybe we can resolve this issue once and for good. Once we ask GPI, GPT, if it thinks it is creative. And if so, then it should better prove it to us. Well, if you, dear listener, would like to hear more from May, you can find her on LinkedIn, where she's at May Zhang, and also on Medium, medium.com slash this is May, if I'm not mistaken. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, May. Do you have any parting words of wisdom to the future generations who are going to listen to this very podcast 25 years from now, thinking, what, what are they talking about? Everything is AI anyway now. What I want to share is, yeah, definitely know like AI is something, something not new, but something innovative in our generation right now. Designers are using chat GPTs, you know, to create their uh, daily slides. But I would like to talk to the future generations to, to, yeah, maybe, you know, being creative or being, or follow your intuitions is something that cannot be replaced by AI. I think I really treasure, I think designers should be really treasured because we have the power that might not be able to replace by any type of machines and stuff because we are human, we are caring, and we are always creative. And we can, you know, connect adults. That is something you should develop or treasure as a skill. Yeah. So I think that is something I would like to tell to the future generation. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at SmashingMag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, 
or in the supermarket by the cat food. Ooh.